Welcome to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Skinhead and their opening track on their demo, Fuckface Skins. They'll have some cassette tapes and Creep Records and at Sit and Spin in the coming months. You can also check that out on Spotify. I want to send my love and condolences to everybody in the Connecticut and New England hardcore family. This entire episode is dedicated to the memory of John Chano. John Chano was a longtime part of the Connecticut hardcore scene who passed away after a long illness and is loved by many. He ran Seas Records and worked with Brass City Tattoo in Waterbury, Connecticut, and loved and hated Miami with the Miami Inc. crew, R.I.P. Chano, and much love to all our friends out there who are suffering the loss of their friend. Big shout-outs to Fast Break Records for dropping five Crutch Records. That's right, five Crutch Records, not ever before on digital format. Brotherhood and Sisterhood, Now the Tables Turn, I'll See You in Hell, Our Thing, The Mafia Years, Crutch No Retreat, The Split, and The Crutch Demo. These will all be available on Apple and Spotify through Fast Break Records. Check out FastBreakRecords.com. And while we're talking about it, Go to CrucifiedStraightEdge.com. We still got the camo hoodies up. We're going to have some more stuff come up in the springtime. Check these out. Both these companies are involved in this podcast and support everything that we're up to so far. Jamie Biss was recommended to me by my friend Max Morton. I was asking about people that we knew within the hardcore scene that had a tremendous story involving tireless amounts of work and effort to become a success and how it ties back into the working class ethics in the hardcore scene. And right off the bat, Max was like, you got to talk to Jamie. He actually even mentioned that Juice, who was on a previous episode, had designed a t-shirt for him. And through some going back and forth between scheduling, we finally got Jamie on the show. For those of you listening who are thinking, why the hell do I want to listen to a guy who is a famous restaurateur talk about cooking and such, this is an inspirational story about what happens when you push yourself to the passion that is driving you. So many times people find things that they love, but they're willing to give up and stop just short of their goal. And this story and his conversation is just reinforcing the importance of just driving forward, never stopping, and eventually you'll achieve that success that you could always dream about. So here we go. We're talking to Jamie Biss today. Jamie Biss would rise from the New England hardcore scene to a world-renowned restauranteur, chef, with the multiple locations in Boston, New York, Dubai, and Thailand. He would win the TV show Chop and even return as a guest. This is his story of finding a passion, working tirelessly to achieve success through endless hours of working to refine his craft. Welcome to the show, Jamie. I always start off by asking, where do you grow up, and what kind of music was in the house, and what was the bridge of music that got you into punk and hardcore? Um, all right, so I, mean, I grew up in uh, Canton, Connecticut, uh, it's a, like a little town, south, like north, uh, like I guess like southwest of Hartford. Um, it's kind of like a, a small working class town. It's, it's a little bit nicer now than it was growing up. Um, but it had a, a pretty high concentration of hardcore kids. There was, there you know, hardcore kids and skins. It, it, and it was great, you know, like growing up in that town, if you weren't like kind of uh, the homogenized normal kind of person like everybody else, you, you were kind of made fun of and pushed around and whatnot. So it took a while for me to, to like find my place. Um, you know, I didn't really know about music. I, my dad is a jazz musician. So I grew up loving like Dave Brubeck and Oscar Peterson and, you know, uh, just Thelonious Monk, just loved, loved that stuff. And he had a turntable and a bass downstairs. So, you know, I would always try to play on it and 
and whatnot. And it was like right around sixth grade, somebody gave me a mixtape, um, started listening to it, it had black, uh, black Flag on it and The Misfits and Nine Inch Nails. And I was like, wow, this is pretty good. And then somebody gave me another mixtape and it it had like a, a bunch of ska bands. I was like, wow, this is pretty good too. And it was like, it was interesting. And I liked it because not everybody else liked it. Um, and then as I started getting a little, little bit older, I think, you know, junior high school, I started listening to a little heavier stuff. Um, and then eventually like started talking to some of the other kids, you know, that lived up, up the street from me, like this kid, Greg Pillen lived a couple, you know, maybe a half a mile away. And, you know, started hanging out and talking to him and his favorite band was like Super Touch. He, so he gave me a tape and had Super Touch on it. And then this kid, Dan, at school was selling a record that he said sucked. And he sold me an, in the first into another 12 inch right when it first came out. And like I was hooked. You know, I started going to shows probably in like 1992 ish. Um, and immediately I just loved the energy. I loved the chaos. And uh, yeah, I just felt like it was a, a part of my life. Um, it was great. I loved, just really enjoyed uh, the community around it because, you know, growing up, I was, you know, a little bit different than everybody else. You know, I think that's what draws a lot of us to hardcore. I just didn't fit in. And um, I just loved that, you know, you could go to a show and you could see, you know, whether it was, you know, Luch kicking somebody in the face or fucking Dave Duncan jumping off the stage feet first to Andy. It was just, I loved it. And yeah, I just couldn't get enough of that energy. And I started lying to my parents and sneaking out of the house and going to shows ever since. Now, for you specifically, do you have any um, friends that you think of that was like probably key to you coming into this whole thing and like the drive beyond just a guy tape? Like, did you guys all carpool to shows? When I know everyone, everyone has that sneaking out behind their parents. Like, how did you guys get to the shows? in your area were you guys all carpooling were you guys close How yeah we were carpooling a lot you know greg pillen would drive a lot aaron buckkiss lived in town one town over um there was this um this family of uh hardcore hardcore family i called it like uh the lafferty's um i would try to get rides with them and my my best friends growing up they're you know burton chris and mike poorman all hardcore kids and like you know i was i think i was the first one no, Poorman was the first one to get his license, but I don't think his mom let him do anything. You know, we would just, uh, you know, try to scam rides from everybody in town and you'd get, you know, meet somebody from a town over. And, you know, the next thing, you know, you're, you're like scamming a ride from somebody in Avon and then uh, starting to band with them. Just, uh, yeah, I mean, so long ago, it all just kind of like blends together. But it was like, it was great because we had, we had just like really good people around us, you know, just really good, uh, fun people. Uh, a part of East Coast hardcore for people, you know, a lot of people who don't live out here is the close proximity to other scenes. How soon in your uh, hardcore mania did you guys actually start traveling beyond just Connecticut? Uh, like sick for me, like all the other kids were older than me. They were doing that already. Um, so it was pretty immediate. I remember, you know, maybe it was sophomore year driving to Worcester to see like Outspoken or something may have been my first out-of-state show um and then we were coming up to boston a lot boston was a big one new york not quite as much uh because we lived in that part of connecticut that was just a little bit closer to boston just just by a little bit and uh yeah we ended up going up coming up to boston a lot and i fell in love with the city you also feel like anyone who has to go south or if you're going north from new york to connecticut it's a nightmare traffic and vice versa 
yeah. see why more people in that northern part of Connecticut always gravitating towards Massachusetts. Now, at the time that you were um, starting to be exposed to all these shows, obviously there was like a, almost like a change of guard. You know, the, uh, the original youth crew bands had all started breaking into these other things. As you were finding these bands and being excited, did you have some older people being like, oh, you, you missed the real bands? Or were all your guys like super excited about what you were being exposed to and the bands playing as you were first going to show? Yeah, I mean, there was always that like, you know, people telling stories about the anthrax that I didn't get to go to. Like, yeah, it sucked. It, it was like kind of cool. But yeah, it was weird because in the early 90s in, in Connecticut, there was a weird changing of the guard where a lot of the youth crew in hardcore bands ended up, they ended up in like, you know, like New York and Philly and, you know, whatever. And like, I guess, you know, I met Pete Morrissey at a pretty young age and he, he was so accepting and so fucking awesome. Like he just brought me under his wing and was like, don't do that. Don't be friends with that guy. Don't be, be friends with that guy. Like, don't do that. You know, like just a really good friend mentor, you know, to help me be an adult. Um, and now hearing the stories about all the old days was great, but we also got to, you know, build our own. Like, you know, I can say that I think I saw Dismay, one of the one of the best bands out of Connecticut, probably one of the most underrated bands too. You know, more times than, than you know any other band at, at one point. And like we had Higher Force had just started playing and Evolve and Joss the Fourteen, and like there was just the shows were smaller, but it was a tight knit group. It was just awesome, man. I mean, it would have been great to have been more, you know, more of that like underdog youth of today, judge era, but uh, man, it was awesome. No, I actually, why I asked you is because that's something that I ran into was like, as I'm a young kid, I was, I was much younger. I was like 12, 13, fine and hardcore. And then as I'm going to more shows, I just kept being told by people like, oh, well, you missed Turning Point. You missed this. And it's like, fuck, there was a moment where I'm like, fuck, I feel like I missed everything, you know, but like um, I actually have, there's a blue cassette tape that Dismay has. I still have that in my box of cassettes. It's definitely one of them bands that like you hear and you're like, holy fuck. And I definitely agree with you. They definitely got overlooked. Santa Time kind of put over top. I'm actually real like, away towards a lot of Connecticut bands. But you brought up Josta 14, which is interesting because obviously people would go on to talk about the stuff Jamie would do later. But there's so much in that process of Connecticut, like so many bands like, I, I, I love Cornerstone from the first time I heard oh. them. Um, when we would travel up to the Bristol Skate Park with some of the coolest shows, I got the lucky to see 25 to Life at the tune-in two or three times. You know, like, going mm-hmm. to Connecticut was different because it wasn't New York, but it wasn't not New York. The shows were still violent, but it was a different kind of thing. You know, it was a different vibe altogether. Totally. And I feel like unless you've been to a Connecticut show in the mid-'90s, whether it was an LNG, tune-in, um, Sport Palace, the Boiler yeah, Room. There was these uh, shows at that time that were just like, it was still it was still pretty fucked up. And then when Hapri would start coming down, you'd see Connecticut hardcore people come down and you're like, all right, man, these Connecticut guys brought it. Now, uh, something that you touch on, um, what was it? What was the thing that you did in your bands, and what like what made you want to join a band? Like, what was the the impetus for you to even get involved musically to be in a band? to get involved I just uh I just loved the energy and I saw everybody up on stage having fun it was like I didn't have to be in the band to jump up on stage and jump off of it which I thought was great but I thought it'd be really cool to like be creative and my dad was a bass player 
Um, we had a base around the house. So I started playing, playing on that and teaching myself how to play. And, you know, a bunch of kids I went to high school with were pretty talented musicians and started bands. So I would, you know, jump, join the band, realize, you know, pretty clearly, pretty quickly that I couldn't play for shit. And, uh, I would end up either kicking me out or I would end up being moved to vocals or something like that. But, um, I ended up doing a zine for, for a while. I think I had like six, uh, six of them. I loved that, like, you know, tr- you know, meeting kids from all over the country and like trading photos. It's, you know, it's just great. Um, I played bass, but I was terrible. I play bass now and I'm much better. <laughs> now, your father, was he accepting of the hardcore punk thing when you started playing or he just thought you were? Uh, my dad was a workaholic, man. He didn't, he didn't see it. He, you know, he just knew that I was gone. He, he didn't, if he heard what I was listening to, he'd make fun of it because he, he didn't understand it. Now he, he's a little bit more supportive and, you know, I didn't even realize how important that community and that culture was at the time, you know, and by the time I was 14, I'd shaved my head and started donning Fred Perry's and I was still a straight edge youth crew kid at heart, but, you know, dressed in, you know, fighting a lot and like, you know, dancing as hard as I absolutely could. And I was always into all kinds of music too. You know, I'd go to like a lot of ska and reggae shows and the oi shows, things like that, but. No, man, it was great. Like we, you know, going to the, you know, going to like the boiler room or going to a CT's bike exchange in Bristol, like every weekend, it was like the same five guys, you know, it's like, or maybe not even, maybe it was like the same 25 guys. We just have like the best time jumping all over each other. And like when people are posting videos now, like 25 to life, you know, at, you know, in Bristol in like 1994, I can like remember the first note of the of that show and getting smashed in the face by Rick Healy and being like, "This is what I'm here for." You know, it was just it was just the best time. No, I feel like you touched on some of the best uh, quality things about the '90s scene, specifically in zines. I think it's awesome that you made your own zine. It's something that is slowly working its way back into our culture now. It's like a completely anachronistic thing because obviously we got the websites and all this stuff, but kids mm-hmm. are really starting to get into the the visual expression. It's funny they're even going back to like the old throwback graffiti and the staple paper. Mm-hmm. And um, what you said also is something that is lost in our time. Where you were a hardcore kid, you're a youth kid, yeah, but we dress like a skinhead. You shaved your fucking head, but yeah, we also like my entire birth of what I understood as hardcore came from metal at first. But then within the first two years, I knew ska bands, I knew oi bands, I knew everything about, you know, like all these different varieties, but they were all encompassed in our scene because those yeah. are the bands that were playing our shows. And it's something that kind of gets lost now because we got so much, we had so many more years of bands and it's more organized and kind of micro micromanaged where you don't see a kid who's in the youth crew who will also go see a ska thing. But that was a huge part of it. Now, did you you did travel with your bands, correct? Yeah, a little bit. You know, we we would do little tours, and then band like friends bands would do tours. And I would go with them. Um, but I, I mean, I got kicked out of high school in um, 1994, end of the year, like well, end of the year of 1994. I would have graduated 95. Um, got my GED instead, and moved to Florida to go to culinary school because it was as far away from from Connecticut as possible. That's kind of what I wanted to get to. So as everything's going on with hardcore and a typical story, like I think that a lot of people, you either like are a square kid in school where you're like, I love hardcore, but my grades and my parents, or it's the opposite where 
the culture is your driving force and school is an afterthought. What was the drive and interest to get you to uh, not just get your GED, but then find the, um, the school in, in Fort Lauderdale and get your culinary degree? Well, you know, like playing in bands and, and like going to shows, there was so much before going to a show, like you'd meet up at a Denny's or a pizza shop or whatever and eat. And a lot of kids were vegetarians or vegans. I was at one point. We just never, you know, never found really great food. And I always loved it. I always loved the community around food. So like when I was in bands, like I was in this hardcore band called Justify at, at Farmington Valley, Connecticut. And uh, during practices, sorry about that dog was going wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of the fun aspects of our podcast is someone's dog always starts freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. You can only imagine. Yeah, so we'll just pick it up from like, just tell me what you were going through to get yeah. you to go to school. And I'll, I'll, I'll. Yeah, so like, you know, being vegan, kids and, you know, straight edge vegetarians, wasn't a lot of places to eat. Like, especially in the mid 90s, saying that you were vegan was like saying that you were a Satanist, you know? And uh, we started like hanging out with some kids who would go to the, um, the Krishna temples and we would get some free Indian food. And I really just fell in love with like those flavors. It was like, my, you know, my, my household was, you know, Middle class, suburban, Connecticut, you know, working class family, not a lot of money. We weren't very like educated with food. We ate a lot of like macaroni and cheese and casseroles and, you know, hamburger helper. So like at home, my mom, not, not really like cool with the vegetarian shit. So she wouldn't cook for me. So I started cooking for myself. And uh, I realized like from the Indian spices and cooking a little bit at home, I started watching this uh, thing on the Discovery Channel. Uh, called The Great Chefs. And I would see like Jacques, Jacques Pepin and Julia Child on TV. And I was like, man, like that's kind of cool. Like cooking, cooking's kind of fun. Like I enjoyed working with my hands and doing it. And uh, I started, just started cooking at home a lot and um, fell in love with it. And uh, I was in this like, um, remember in high school, you'd like the, if you were like one of those kids that uh, they were pretty sure wasn't going to go to college, they'd put you in like the uh, work program so you could get out of school at lunch and then go start your job. And my, my guidance counselor, Mr. Bukowski, Bukowski, I can't remember anymore. He said something to the effect of, you know, Jamie, you're clearly not going to go to college. You're clearly, you know, just a fucking hoodlum, you know, fuck up you know, we're going to get you in this program. So you'll have a class with me to talk about your development as somebody who's not going to, you know, become an educated person. And we'll, you know, you can get out early so you can go get a job and you can get into the workforce and start working your way up as a laborer. And, you know, I was like, wow, that, that makes sense. I didn't know what I wanted to do. It didn't make, you know, whatever. But in that class, people would come in different, like vote, take like vote, like vocational, like schools would come in and they'd think, oh yeah, you should go here to be, you know, to get into HVAC, which if I could do it all over again, HVAC is where I would go, man. Everybody needs HVAC. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, it right. makes sense to me. And like the school, the, in the school, like this, uh, somebody came in to do a presentation, they put the video cassette in and they're playing it and they're handing out pamphlets. And it was for the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale. And I liked the idea of Fort Lauderdale because it didn't snow. I was tired of New England. It was cold. I wanted to get as far away from my family as I possibly could. I was going through that obligatory, like, you know, 16, 17 year old, like I hate all my friends in hardcore because it's all stupid and I hate it. And I want to disown everything. You know, like, I think a lot of, a lot of hardcore kids I knew went through like a, like a short phase like that. And it was just happened to be that day. I was just pissed about who I was and what I was doing. I felt like I was a loser. You know, I've been told that I was going to, 
not be anything by everybody. My dad told me he was hoping I just wouldn't go to jail. And uh, I was like getting ready to leave. And I grabbed the pamphlet and I opened it up and, you know, we had watched the video, but I wasn't paying attention. I opened it up and I saw that there was culinary arts and I never really thought of it. So a couple of days later, I, you know, talked to the, talked to my guidance counselor. I was like, yeah, I want to learn more about the culinary arts program. And he laughed and told me, yeah, that's fine. You can go get a job as a line cook or, or pumping gas. You know, that's what people do who can't find real jobs. He's like, you don't go to school to be a, to be a cook. You just cook. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Flash forward like four or five months. I get, I got into a little bit of trouble, got kicked out and uh, started calling that school to see how I could get in. The only requirement they had was I had to have a GED. I called some other culinary schools and they were like, yeah, you don't have the experience. I was 17. I was too young. Um, I didn't have a high school diploma. They were like, you're not, you're not what we want. We want serious chefs, not like I'm going to be a cook because I can't get a job doing anything else. Which, you know, the restaurant industry does have a lot of that. There's a lot of people that just go in untrained. And to be honest, I fucking prefer them. Like they're more like me, you know, they're, you know, more scrappy. So I went to culinary school, uh, put myself through school in Fort Lauderdale, uh, moved, uh, moved down there in July of 1995. And uh, yeah, it was great. I, and, then, and then I eventually found that, you know, within a couple of weeks, went to a couple shows and found a hardcore scene down there and ended up uh, with some, you know, some awesome friends and hanging out with lots of great people down there as well. I wanted to touch back on one thing just before we lose sight of it is that um, 90s hardcore scene was bereft of vegan pamphlets. Philadelphia was a centerpiece for Krishna hardcore and vegetarianism would eventually switch into veganism. And I, I was in this, at the very same time exposed to this weird foods and they were like, oh, it's fake cheese. I thought the fake cheese tasted. I always still say that fake cheese tasted like melted crayon. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't do it. Oh, it was so bad. And um, so much of the food I try, like I, I have I have the wor- same thing. I had the worst palate. My mom was a single mother. You know, she she didn't have a great culinary sense. Very simple meals. So I have the I have a, still have like a child's palate to this day. Only now am I starting to be able to cook at least a little bit all right for myself. But <laughs> at that time, trying to eat that that old school vegan vegetarian food was so different, and 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 a lot of it wasn't great. And I remember like it's much different than it is now. And I know we're gonna get to that, but I just want to touch on that. Like when he's talking about the vegetarian food, it's nothing like it is now. Like it's. Oh no! You, you, unless you went to an Indian restaurant, yeah, you, you get vegetarian food. It's like you're asking for vegetarian food at Denny's, and you get the sautéed okra, and it's like no salt, just trash. Like you almost like I thought like as a vegetarian, you couldn't enjoy food um, because you, you just couldn't find flavor. But I just realized it was because there was this weird stigma for cooking vegetarian that people like regular chefs just didn't do it. And I found that as I became, you know, and om- I became an omnivore and started eating everything again in my career. Um, but not until after culinary school. And I was like, fuck, you know, people just don't give a shit about the vegetarian. Like I'd be like, Oh, he's been working at a restaurant. Somebody's like, Oh yeah, that you make that vegetarian. There's chicken stock in it. They'd be like, yeah, they can't taste it. And I was like, Oh, that's so fucked up. Or like, it was always like the last, the last thought. So even though I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a, I became a butcher and I've done charcuterie, I still always pride myself in having awesome vegan and vegetarian options at my restaurants, so people can come in and enjoy it. And but it always fucking pissed me off. There was nothing, man. It was like 
you get fucking steamed rice with uh, not even fucking scallions, like dehydrated parsley. It was a fucking embarrassment. Yeah, it was definitely something that made it harder for people to trans. Like you had to be, you had to be full in to want to go through it and stick with it, especially back then. Yeah. Now, when you hit when you hit Fort, Fort Lauderdale, not so much with the hardcore scene, but with the culinary school, did you have a different focus because you're like, fuck this, this is what I have to do because you were in school? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I got down there, I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm here for one one reason is to become the best cook that I can be. Um, but I still had that energy. I still needed to go to shows. I still needed to have an outlet. So I, I didn't have, I didn't have like that same commitment that I did when I was a carefree high school kid of like, you know, going to a show every single weekend. But at first, you know, it was good. I could, you know, get one weekend night off, uh, you know, a week, maybe a Friday or a Saturday. So I'd still go, go to a show here or there, you know, um, after work or after school. Um, but I really threw myself into, into cooking like pretty hard. I sold all my records. Well, not all of them. I sold most of my records, which fuck, now I'm still like scouring discogs, trying to find affordable copies of records that I gave away or sold when I went to culinary school that I wish I still had. <laughs> that's a, that's a re- repeating trope in all of our things is the records we gave away sold. And, and, and now the price of them are so much. It's like, what do you do? Do you buy the first pressing or do you go, fuck it. I just want this on my wall. I just want to have it again. Yeah, exactly, man. It sucks. <laughs> now, were you, were you, were you, because uh, you're in Fort Lauderdale, did you catch culture in the beginning of morning again? Or, what, yeah, what, so, <laughs> down there. So, my roommate was Damien Moyal. The best. That's my, so, boy. yeah, Damien, Damien and I moved, ended up living together for a year and a half uh, in Fort Lauderdale. So, yeah, very much caught that, all that hardcore. I mean, yeah, I think there's videos from culture shows down at uh down at Cheers and in, in South Miami. It just fucking us oh, going crazy. It was awesome, and because Damien was so engulfed in the culture and like you know growing up in Connecticut when there was bands playing at like Studio One Fifty Eight, they you know if they needed a place to stay on their way out of town going south, I'd be like oh yeah you know come come stay at my house and like I wouldn't tell, ask my parents permission. They'd wake up and there'd be like eight kids sleeping in our house. And uh, so some of those same guys were friends with Damien. So we ended up having like people from all over the, all over the place, you know, come in to stay at our, at our apartment for a couple of days. And I'd be like, oh, I'll make food. And I'd make like big, big things of doll or, you know, Moroccan chickpea stews. It was fucking awesome, man. It was great. Now you came from Connecticut, which had a pretty violent, rough scene, but you mentioned Cheers. And definitely at that time, there was still some of the remnants of some of the more violent straight edge stuff and just, South Florida definitely didn't fuck around. So you kind of felt at home. Yeah, it was awesome. It was crazy. Like the, the violence in South Florida, like I didn't think Connecticut was that violent until I went to like other places and realized that they weren't Um, like, you know, you'd be like, you know, Virginia beach or something, or even Jersey, you know, some parts of Jersey, you'd be like, Oh, this show is so tame. Whereas Connecticut shows were just so energetic. And then Florida was, was wild. I mean, you know, that was the first time I saw somebody pull a gun outside of a hardcore show. And I was like, Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, actually, no, we saw, I saw somebody pull a gun outside of a hardcore show in in, uh, New Britain, but the person pulling the gun was a Latin King and they were pulling it on one of us. You know, it wasn't like a hardcore kid carrying a gun. It was just, it was crazy. It was wild. It was violent. Um, There were so many skinhead gangs that were like rivals that were all like, 
pretty anti-racist or like, you know, um, mixed, mixed race groups of people. But then there was also a ton of racism in Florida. So that was, uh, that was kind of fun because we always, we always beat up the Nazis in New Haven when they came around, but it was fun to like see a big group of people be able to beat, beat them up down in Florida. Yeah. It's a huge culture thing where uh, people don't believe it. When I tell them, I'm like, when we started heading down there was towards the end of the nineties and the two thousands. And I, it was at the same time we were, you know, you would see the end of the Nazi gangs, but they were still out there. And it was a giant culture of, Hey, we're going to smash you. But South Florida is renowned for Cubano and like these just crazy skinheads, shirtless, head to toe tattooed motherfuckers, but they're mosh into like hate breed and all the heavier shit. And they're the ones that were first. It was always good to go down that way. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, like these guys like Jason Tate and Jamie Valentine, they were just fucking absolute, absolute maniacs. But because of hardcore, just like any, just like anything else, like you get to know people and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I never thought that I'd be friends with like, you know, some Zulu nation motherfuckers, you know? It's great. That's definitely a, one of those melting pot spots because you had you had the whole crowd that would come up from Miami. Mm-hmm. You had the people that would drive down. I played down there a lot. In fact, um, some of them bands, again, some of them bands down there don't get enough recognition as well. Now, you said you were at this stage, were you vegan straight edge or were you because of culinary school having the first learn? Like, what was your what was your approach to your food and the way you were eating when you first got into culinary school? Did you try to like learn that or you like how did I, tried to, I, I tried to cook everything? Um, but I still was, a, I still ate mostly vegan for the first half of school. Um, and I, I just couldn't keep up and I was too broke. I would eat whatever I could afford. And if I was take, I took food home from school a lot. So I would just take home vegetarian food every once in a while, something might have like chicken stock in it. And I'd like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but I, I stayed vegetarian into my twenties. Now, were you, were you finding a clash of ideologies that you're talking about with the cooking where like you were, or did you say, Hey, I want to learn cooking entirely or not just focus on being like a vegetarian vegan type cook? Yeah. Like, so that was a big thing. It's like, I didn't want to just be, I didn't want to just work at like Mamoons or, you know, something like that. I wanted to, I wanted to be uh, a chef that worked in fine dining. I wanted to learn French. Like back then in my industry, French cuisine was like, that was like the, the, the top of the mountain, man. That was what everybody wanted to do. So I was working towards that. I wanted to learn how to, you know, how to hold, carry myself on that traditional French style brigade. Um, and the work ethic that I, I got from seeing my dad as a workaholic growing up and then, you know, being around pe- people like Pete, you know, who mentored, mentor you in that, like, kind of like the skin ethos. I just, I knew that I just had to work hard. Um, so that's what I did. I just became a workaholic. Now, what do you, what drove you into, cause it's such a, it's such a uh, dichotomy from the simple eating at your home. Like what, what drove you with the fine dining? Like what would uh, draw you to that? Well, I mean, I, I started getting tattoos when I was really young, like 15. And I knew that I wanted to work in a kitchen. And I, I liked the, um, I've always liked people not, not expecting what they got out of me. Like, I love that people could judge me and, and like, look at you and say, oh, I know, I know what that guy is all about from how they look, how they dress, what the, you know, whatever. Um and, you know, back then in kitch- kitchens weren't like they are now. Like if you were the executive head chef of a restaurant, you still probably weren't allowed in the dining room during service. 
So for me, I just wanted to be the kind of chef that could be feeding motherfuckers that would normally not even sit next to me on the train. Like it was going to be awesome for me because we weren't allowed. Like we were never going to be public facing people. So I could do whatever I wanted to my body. I could look however I wanted to look. And that's, that was it. I wanted to be the best and I wanted to cook the hardest food, the best food. And that's what I thought it was. What's interesting now is there's almost like a internet trope of like every chef is like sleeved heavily. It drives me fucking bananas. Every, like there's like something people send me at least once a week. Somebody sends me on Instagram uh, having tattoos used to mean that I'm tough and don't fuck with me. And now it means I'm putting a balsamic drizzle on my pork belly or ask me about my vegan cat. And it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then you look at, you look at some people and you can see like their pretty manicured tattoos of like, Oh, they got that all from one, one tattoo or, you know, in the last two years for a couple thousand dollars. And then you look at guys like us and you're like, Oh yeah, that's a piecemeal arm of, you know, he's got a crucified skin and a Walt Jabsco and a straight edge tattoo and a rose and a cover up and a tribal armband. It's like, I like that. I've got the, those, those badges of my life on my body rather than just that like perfect manicured bodysuit. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, um, I pour concrete. So even my blast overs and shitty tattoos like you're talking about seem to be like, Oh, this looks so good. And I'm thinking like, Dude, I got some of this when I was like 17, 18 years old. Yeah. You know, um, now I got to ask. How old are you now, Joe? I, I just turned 40. Okay, yeah. Now, a uh, question. How much How much of school, because I've always been curious, how much of school is like the physical art of cooking and like the cutting? And how much of it is like, how, like what, what, do you, what do you really learn at culinary school? Uh, briefly, obviously, because I know you learned a lot, but like, how much of it is cutting and getting used to that handwork and the, and the moving around and how much of it is immersion and what you're going to be doing later on? It depends on the culinary school, to be honest, but to be, if you're a, if you're going to be a chef and you want that, like you can learn a lot about the terminology and old classic things. Like a lot of people will never learn how to make a laminated dough to make like croissants or danishes unless you go to culinary school or work in a, in a pastry shop. So it's good for that kind of stuff and learning like some, some terminology, the hands-on stuff was cool because I was 17, man. I, I couldn't make a fucking fried egg to save my, you know, actually I could make a fried egg, but I couldn't make like a lot of shit. So learning how to like, like coax flavors in a pan and build flavors was cool. And like that there was an order and a reason. Um, and I needed that, but all in all, I don't think culinary school was really worth it for me. I think that if I had just started cooking somewhere um, for somebody that could have uh, could have mentored me, it would have been better. But that's the other problem is who wants to mentor someone who just says they want to cook. So going to school helped me at least when I would go in to try to work somewhere, they would say, oh, at least he has a culinary school degree. And even after culinary school, I still could hardly get a job because I had already had I had my hands tattooed. I had my neck tattooed had sleeves and uh you know i was 19 years old and they, nobody wanted to hire me in like, 1997 it was uh it was hard and but you know school school gave me the basics it gave me the tools um but it, it's what you do with them that really matters um yeah now as you shifted from school to graduation where was your where was your move and what was the first real big foot in the door for you in your career Oh man, 
I worked at, you know, some mediocre spots all around the South Florida. I worked for a chain. I worked for a British pub. Uh, I worked at a catering company where I learned a lot of how to hustle. The catering company was the most fucking ghetto. Like it was like going to a hardcore fest in like the nineties in New Jersey and fucking somebody's basement. You know, it was just like so thrown together and chaotic. Uh, that was, I kind of loved it. Um, and then I'm, I decided I needed to get out of Florida. I, I was like, yeah, I'm getting, getting sick of it down here. And my uncle lived up in Boston and worked in restaurant industry. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll go up, stay with him. He kind of grew up like my older brother. He's only nine years older than me. Figured yeah, I'll try it up there. So I packed up my car one weekend. I was so pissed off about something. I can't remember what I was mad about anymore. Some fight or something that we got into downtown Fort Lauderdale, hanging out one night when there was no show. We were all just being a bunch of idiots. I don't know. One of our friends threw a bottle at somebody's car and the guy got out of the car and was like, you know, cops came, fight broke out, kid ran. Everybody thought I did it. I thought somebody, I thought Damien, my roommate did it. We like got at each other's throat. We got back home and I was just like, I needed to get out. And, you know, I was depressed. Florida wasn't for me anymore. Um, so I moved, I just packed up my car and drove to Boston one weekend and um, was like, I'm going to find a job. And I wanted to know who the best was when I, when I came up to Boston and Jasper White was somebody that I had read a, read a lot about, but he had closed his restaurant Jasper's place. I'd come up once to come stage with him and like work for free for a weekend. And uh, I loved him. He was just angry and big and menacing and didn't take shit and spoke his mind. It was just like, if like a, if a chef could have been embodied by Paul Bearer, it was him. And I just thought it was fucking awesome. That's fucking great. He's crazy. And uh, he had left his restaurant and he started working for a group called uh, Legal Seafood. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go work there. Um, I think I lasted working for the group longer than he did. I think I worked there for about a year and then uh, got into a little bit of trouble and uh, ended up going back to Connecticut for, for two years and lived back in Hartford and worked down there. And uh, that's where I devolved. That's where every, that's where everything went bad. <laughs> now, when you say get bad, what went bad? Oh, I just lost my direction. Became I started becoming a townie. You know, I was like a Hartford townie. I had started drinking and just like picking fights at bars with my friends. And one of my old one of my old best friends from Florida had moved up to live with me in Hartford. And I was working at a couple great restaurants with a really talented chef who was my roommate named Tony. But he was the same thing. You know, he just came from the other side. He wasn't a hardcore kid. He was like a, an old gang kid from Hartford. So we just were a bunch of hoodlums. We acted like assholes and, you know, didn't go to shows even really. Every once in a while I'd go to a show, but I was too consumed with, uh, with work. And uh, we worked for this guy, Billy Grant at Brico in West Hartford. And Billy sat me down one day and said, you know, Jamie, you're going to end up in jail. You need to get, get away from here. You've, you're just, you're going nowhere. When you moved, when you first got to, got here and you were first started working with us, you were awesome. But now you're not. You're not awesome anymore. You're you're shitty. You're a shitty cook, and you're you're being a shitty person. But you've got skills, and uh, and it hurt and it pissed me off. And I like wanted to fucking hit him, and I was I was just so upset. Um, it also was like the same time when I stopped being straight edge. I was like 22 years old, and I just thought you know everything was awesome. I couldn't get a hangover, no matter how hard I tried, and I just thought it was awesome. And then I realized that it wasn't. Um, so I was like, all right, again, you know, typical Jamie decided to run from my problems. And uh, 
packed up and moved back up to Boston to go, you know, to come work up here. Um, in between Florida and, and Hartford, I had traveled around the country and like staged and worked for free at a bunch of places and kind of found, found my refinement, found that I, I had it. Like I knew that I was different and better than a lot of the other cooks. I knew that I had the drive and the tenacity and that like being, being a cook in a kitchen is a lot like, a lot like being part of the hardcore scene. Like you've got to, you've got to be a part of a team with people that you might not always get along with, but you, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to get along, but you got to speak your fucking mind and you've got to do your own shit and you've got to hold up your end of the bargain and, but you've got to work together and you've got to help other people along. And I just felt natural. It felt like a natural place for me. And uh, uh, I left Hartford uh, like 99 and uh, moved up to back up to Boston. I was like, yeah, this will be better. And I uh, got up here and I wanted to work for uh, Ken Oranger. This uh, guy, he had just won the James Beard Award like a year and a half earlier. He had a restaurant called Cleo that was like known to be one of the best. And, uh, and that was my goal. I came up here, tried to work for him staged uh started hanging out like at uh, the bars that i knew he hung out at and i uh, just tried to get myself around him we ended up becoming uh friends but i ended up not working at his restaurant uh cleo and working at other restaurants and just kind of trying to make my name up here and then you know all of a sudden one day i looked up and i was like the sous chef of uh of a really great restaurant and the chef was being nominated for the james beard award which, you know, growing up, I don't, my goal was to work for a chef who had won it. It was like, ah, so fucking wild, you know? And, uh, and now I've, I've been here for you know, 20 years. Now, one of the things that you keep bringing up is uh, the term stage. Yeah. Explain how that works. So st- stage is somebody in a restaurant who will go and work for free for a day and you can do it. A lot of restaurants in the States have you do it so you can, um, they can see your skills, your skill level, and you can see the culture if that's the kind of restaurant you wanna be in. Um, In Europe, you would do them usually for longer periods of time. And some of the restaurants that I got to do it at uh, would be for like two weeks at a time. So I would work for two weeks at a time at a restaurant that would normally probably not hire me, but they'd have me doing shitty jobs like picking mushrooms or like, you know, brushing, every leaf of parsley after I dipped it in simple syrup before we candied it, like things that are meticulous that are what make fine dining so interesting that you just, that kind of labor couldn't be supported. So they would have free labor. Um, and that was us, stages. And that was a way to kind of expose yourself to these people and network? Network and learn, man. Yeah, 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 it was great. Now, as you were doing that, you also supplement it with like a regular steady crazy cooking job at the same time is that how that worked sometimes sometimes i would have a job and i would stage on my days off sometimes i would work my ass off save up as much money as i could at one point i saved you know i i got a credit card and i thought oh this is great i can live off that and i had a had a really for me it was a really high um uh, limit it was like 500 bucks a month so i would max that out staging for a month then find a job somewhere and make my money to pay off that until I could afford to do it again. Now, one of the things that we have so many people that are from the hardcore scene that are involved in every aspect of the restaurant business. But the one thing is, is they're constantly working. So it's, man, I wish I'd come, but I got to get this shift. I need someone to cover me. I want to go to this show. You got, did you ever get like dismayed and like despondent because you were getting so detached from the ability to go to a show? Or did you find a balance where you're, 
staying in touch? Like, how'd that work out for you with like, as you're trying to get yourself in the industry, where was your connection with hardcore because of how many hours you had to put in doing this? You know, it, it wasn't, you know, it was a lot of like, I wouldn't go to a show for sometimes months. And then if I did, I would go and I would see people and it would be like a, oh my God, what are you doing here? Kind of moment, which, you know, I kind of liked it. I still talked to people and, and had my connections with, you know, my friends. And, but yeah, there was a very good amount of time. Where like I was talking to a, a couple of kids and like from Connecticut not long ago and they're like, yeah, it was like you were at every show. And then you said you were going to culinary school. And then we saw you intermittently for like two years. And then we didn't see you for like eight years. And yeah, I mean, I, it was like probably 2001. It was right around 9-11 until probably 2008, where all I did was work. That's it. I, I didn't do anything else. I think that's the kind of commitment you need to make. I mean, that's like your immersion into the whole thing. Yeah. And it was like, but then if I got to go to a show, it was like such a luxury and it was so rewarding to like, that's what I loved. It was, I'd go to, you know, go to go see a band and like run into people and they'd it'd be like, nothing happened. It'd be like, it was a, you know, 10 years before it was the last time I saw somebody, but we're talking about, you know, like a show, like it was yesterday. It was just, you know, it was nice. It was good. Yeah. There was a lot of parallels, just not only because so many people from hardcore find themselves in these whether it's just like the low end of the line cooker, just waiting or, you know, what all the different levels, there had to be a lot of parallels between how our scene communicates networks, how people help each other out. Did you sign, did you feel at home in that world because of how our, our world operates? Yeah, it, it, it is there exactly like what you just said, but I also think I brought it to my, to the restaurants that I was working in, you know, cause we do things like guest chef things where we'll bring a chef from somewhere else. Kind of like if we wanted to play in our hometown and we want to have another band and be like, yo, come over here. We're going to put on a show. Like there was a lot of that kind of similarities. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. One of the things you said earlier, and I want to touch back to you, you said at some point you realized you were better. What, what was that moment? you felt like I actually have this and I'm better. Like where you got your confidence. Well, I was looking around at all the other people in some of the kitchens I worked in. And I realized that we weren't all, we weren't all on the same, the same page, the same level. Like there was like people who were there for paychecks. There were people who were there who wanted to be, wanted to be professional chefs, but they really just liked the lifestyle more. They wanted to party and do Coke and, and whatnot. And I've never done that. I've never fell into the, I never fell into the drugs. I, I drank a lot for, for I didn't, I drank too much for a little bit and then realized that I didn't like, didn't like the way it affected my body. So I cut back on that and became more responsible. And I realized that people just didn't take it as seriously. And um, I was reading cookbooks at home. And, you know, one of the things that Damien said, when we were catching up a couple of weeks ago, um, my old roommate in Fort Lauderdale, He's like, yeah, I didn't really realize what you were doing. Like, we're going to shows and you're going to shows with us. And we get home and then you're sitting there with a cookbook writing menus and recipes over and over again. And I just kept doing that over, you know, over the course of the years. But not everybody does that, you know. But it's, uh, it's like, how do you get the how do you how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, right? And how do you get better at cooking? Practice. Just what do you think in you took yourself? beyond that step that everybody else like what did what was in you that presented that like i'm going to go further like what was that where did that come from just push yourself man like yeah just like diy don't take shit like 
I don't have to be the best cook in a kitchen. And oftentimes I wasn't the best cook, but I was the hardest worker. I had the best work ethic. I knew how to push through and like learning how to network like you do in shows and like learning how to like talk to people and meet new people and knowing that because you have common ground, you can, you know, you bring that into the kitchen too. It's uh, it's helpful. Now, obviously with cable TV expanding since you first started, there was like a plethora of like cooking shows and cooking celebrities. So many people who are listening are, are waiting for this like Gordon Ramsay moment. What was your first like evil chef Gordon Ramsay crazy moment if there was any at this stage? Of like a chef freaking out on me? Yeah, like was that a common thing? Because you were talking about culinary school. Like, what oh culinary school? Yeah, culinary school. We had a German uh, German chef dean. He didn't like me because he uh, didn't like that I had tattoos and didn't like that he didn't think I was serious and um, he also thought I was too young. He tried to tell the, the school that I was too young to go to culinary school. Um, she's, he may have been right, but I don't know. He, he used to yell at me, hit me with spoons, throw spoons at me. Um, I, man, oh, there was too many examples. It's like trying to remember who accidentally punched you in a pit. Like, I don't know. It just fucking happened all the time. Chefs just lost their mind. I feel like it's a, it's a relation because there is a part that there's a science to cooking, but there's also a trade. It's more and, of a trade, yeah. And and like for us, we came up in concrete. And if if you didn't have the ice in your veins and whatever the fucking guy said, you just listened to and said, all right, I'm going to eat shit for a while. And that's, is that, would you say that's a very relatable? Yeah, yeah. You, you've got to put on your thick skin cream, you know, like if you take it personally, when you overcook something and the chef pushes the plate back into your station and the plate falls over and the food falls all over your other food and like completely fucks you up. Yeah, it sucks. But complaining about it's just going to get you get you fired. I mean, restaurants don't operate like that anymore. And I I think it's probably good uh, for the long term, but it definitely made you harder, definitely made you more calloused. Now you mentioned being a sous chef was like you, you woke up like, you know, you worked all, it's like kind of like the montage. You worked your ass off, you get to sous chef, but that's not the end of, where were you going to take yourself after you got to that first stage where you're like, okay, I'm getting there. Oh, you know, I got my first sous chef job. I wasn't ready for it. They just did it because I was working really hard. And, you know, a lot of, re- like some restaurants, you get the sous chef job because you go from hourly to salary. So now you don't have to worry about overtime. And uh, so you're going from making like nine fifty an hour back then to getting a salary of $29,000 a year. And you go from working 40 hours barely because they didn't want to give you overtime. To 60. <laughs> no, to 80. And it was like, Holy you know, there was also like growing up in, in like good restaurants, you'd get paid minimum wage and you'd get paid 40 hours a week. So your in time that you had to be at work was two o'clock, but you'd show up at nine o'clock in the morning anyways and work for free until it was time to clock in. Like that was a badge of honor becoming a shift pay or like getting paid per shift or per getting salary to me was a badge of honor. I mean, now I realize that it's, it's against almost every labor law, (laughs) but it's, it's how I, it's how I, I proved my worth. Like I wasn't worth it as a sous chef because of my skills. I was worth it as a sous chef because I was cheap labor and I worked my fucking ass off. Um, but it was my, my first sous chef job in Boston that made me like kind of realize I was working in quality was at a restaurant called Big All. 
uh, fine dining French restaurant. The chef won uh, the best new chef from food and wine. He was nominated for a beard award the year we opened and working there. Like I felt, wow, like Julia Child comes in to eat at our restaurant. Other chefs from around the country, like the chefs that I look up to, you know, whether it was David Burke or, you know, Daniel Ballou or Thomas Keller or the other chefs in Boston, like Ken Oranger and Barbara Lynch would come in and eat at the restaurant that I was the sous chef at. And that like, that was when I was starting to see like, oh, wow, I, I'm, uh, I'm make I'm going to, I'm going to make something out of this career. And there was never a doubt. You know, I always knew that I was going to, I was going to keep cooking. So. Okay. So your first big step was being involved in a restaurant, which was also the hallmark of Boston hardcore, the rat Skeller. How did that work out? How did you get pulled in? Give us a story. So this guy, Garrett Harker, uh, he was leaving uh, the number nine group, fine dining restaurants. He was friends of friends and I'd met him a couple, a bunch of times and he knew who I was from Pigal. He, um, he reached out and said, Hey, we're looking for a chef. And you know, let's talk. So I went to go meet him in the space and he gave me the address, 500 Com Ave. I get there and there's this big ass hotel. I'm like, yeah, hotel. Like, no, not in the hotel. It's about, you know, maybe 300 feet that way. And I'm walking up the street and I'm going to walk in. I'm like, this is the rat. So we walk in and like, we have to walk up on a ladder and we're like clawing around and he's interviewing me to be the chef. And he, I'm just looking around. He's like, oh, have you been here before? And I said, yeah, this is the old rat skiller. He's like, yeah. Oh yeah, look, and he has his liquor license that he's all ready to put on the wall when we open. And it's the Rat Skeller liquor license. Says Rat Skeller on it. I was like, wow, this is fucking so cool. Uh, I used to go to the Rat a lot. You know, I've got, I went to so many fucking shows at the Rat. And we were there, I was there when it closed in 97, the last show, Gangrene played and then everybody ripped the place apart. So on opening day, me and a bunch of a bunch of the cooks and some of the cooks that were on the opening team were also Boston hardcore kids. And uh, when we opened up, we hung the old rat skeller wall in the kitchen, pieces that we had taken throughout the years. So you got brought in as an executive chef. Yeah. So what does that entail? Basically, you run the whole menu. You do. I ran the whole kitchen, room service, twenty-four hour room service, banquet. Uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh, for the hotel restaurant and hired everybody. I was in charge of everything in the restaurant kitchen and worked with uh, the owner directly in the front of the house. And, you know, it was a fucking beast. I had never done that kind of volume before. Uh, I turned into that crazy chef that would throw plates at people and yell and scream. I was a real, I was a real fucking prick. Um, and yeah, it sucked. It was a, it was a great and terrible time. You know, I just, I looking back now, I'm very conflicted on it because uh, I didn't treat people the way that I, I really wished I had. Um, but I also was 27 years old and in charge of a restaurant that ended up doing like, you know, over $10 million a year in sales. So the pressure was high and, you know, I made a name for myself. People started to pay attention. And uh, I was running a great charcuterie program and the food was good, you know, not, not the best. Some food, some days it was better than others. We were right by Fenway Park. So like some nights we'd do 600 covers and just get our asses absolutely handed to us. It's horrible. Um, and one day, just like right around the same time that I was thinking that I didn't want to, I didn't want to work in this volume anymore. I get a call 
uh, from Ken Oranger, who's uh, I'd always been friends with. Uh, you know, hung out in the Clio kitchen a bunch, staged there, and he called me and said, "Hey, um, opening up a new restaurant doesn't even have a name yet. It's going to be also in a hotel. We're going to do like a high end steakhouse, but like cool, not just a typical like suburban steakhouse. Would you be interested?" And I knew that I could learn a lot from him. So uh, next thing you know, I left Eastern Standard and we opened up Ko Prime. I think it's kind of like a stars aligned situation, like the way the cosmos kind of gives us a, uh, this is your right path that your, your big entry is at the rat, you know? Yeah. Um, and especially, if, um, I was, I was at the same age as this is hardcore was in our second year. And I, and I had the same feeling now looking back at it because the tension, the stress, I had a lot of outside of the fest stress as well. <laughs> I would take, I would I I would like to take that Joe and say, dude, you gotta you gotta let this like do the Jocko. You gotta yeah. detach. Yeah, it's all gonna work out. You gotta detach. So I had this when you said that. I immediately had like, yeah, this shit. Like, I mean, not just throwing people off stage physically, but for four days lashing out at the entire world and then acting like, no, everything's okay. It was good. Yeah. I had a good time. And everyone being like, you fucking jerk off. Yeah, I was at some of those shows. Those were great. <laughs> <laughs> so now the question is: is this is a this is a start of like obviously the executive chef's a big deal, and the stress showed you could handle it. How did you feel walking into Ko Prime and like now you're part you're you're now in the seat that you wanted to be in half an hour ago when you're telling us what you were trying to do to link up with this guy. Yeah, you know, I don't think I realized what was happening. I, I don't think I realized what was happening. I just, uh, I was so focused on on just being, you know, making that place the best that I just kept pushing that too. And I brought some of the people with me from uh, from Eastern Standard over there, some some, some like team members, uh, respectfully, like Eastern Standard was okay with it. They understood. Um, and... Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, I don't, yeah, like I said, I just don't think I knew what was happening. I, it was, um, <laughs> if I, I wish I could go back and fucking shake myself. I just had my head up my ass. You know, we, we had, a, we struggled a little bit with that restaurant. Um, and after two years, it was, um, it was just, I, I wasn't the right fit. I wasn't the right fit for that place. I wasn't mentally there. I was freaking out. I had had a couple, you know, borderline assault issues with uh, employees and uh i told ken that i needed to that i couldn't work there anymore and i gave my notice i was like i'm gonna leave and um he's like dude you're fantastic but this is not the right place for you why don't you become my business partner take over toro which was only two years old um and let's open up restaurants together and so a couple weeks later i was the chef at the chef partner at toro and a year and a half later we opened up copa and then from then we opened up a bunch of spots. I know it's a, um, it's so funny that you just like, yeah, we just did this when it's like Copa is in Boston. It's, it's like a very well renowned Italian restaurant. Toro's in Boston and New York and you have little donkey, which is in, isn't in, is it in Thailand or something? Right. I've got little donkeys in Cambridge directly across the street from the middle East. Holy shit. I saw, I was reading something that said that you guys are like, uh, that's like, you guys are award-winning team in Boston. Like you guys are known. Yeah. Yeah. 
we opened, we ended up opening up a Toro in New York city uh, about seven years ago. Um, the same year that that opened up, I won the James Beard award for Copa, which was like, my goal growing up was to work for a chef that had a James Beard award. So when I won that award, I was like, wow, actually my, uh, my award speech. So you get up on stage, uh, Daniel Balud presented my award. I came up, he put the medal around my neck and I said, you know, something like, I'd like to thank my father. I'd like to thank, um, my business partner, Ken, our teams at the restaurants, and uh, I said, normally when I'm up on a stage in front of this many people, I jump off of it this way, going feet first. So I'm going to go that way and not hurt myself. And I walked off the stage. That was it. Again, I, I believe so heavily in that work ethic is going to be the driving force. And there's so many people that we've talked to already on the shows that it's the drive and the persistence that paid off. As you said, you wanted to work for a James Beard winner. You're now a James Beard winner. You own restaurants with a guy that you just wanted to work for. Is there, um, I, obviously there's a, there's a, like a love of this. Is there any time in all this process as you're achieving and you're getting accolades, what was keeping your love in the game? Like, cause it's so much. I loved, I mean, the, the satisfaction of being able to make something and have people like it, you know, like, and like friends would come in, like people would be like on tour or like coming up to play a show in Boston. And like, you know, one of my old friends, you know, our hardcore kids would bring somebody in to eat and like to be able to, to expose my friends to food that they had never had before was mind blowing. And like to have people who were like professional eaters, loved food coming into the restaurant and liking the food. And then we'd have regulars that would come in and be like, wow, that's really good. The cool thing about being a chef is like, if you have ADD, which I think probably I have, or maybe I don't, I don't know, but you, you get that instant satisfaction. You know, there's, you get that immediate dopamine kick of you make something, you put it out, a server comes back and goes, Hey, they love it. And like, that's a good feeling. It's like every night, walking out of the kitchen was the same feeling that I had walking off of a stage when I played in a band, except for now I was doing it and I was getting paid. It was, it was fucking pretty, pretty wild and pretty awesome. And I just, I just loved it. I just, I loved everything about it, but I hated that. Uh, like a lot of my friends couldn't afford to eat at the restaurants. So one of the things that Ken and I wanted to do with Toro and Copa was to have restaurants where we could do the same level of food that we would in a fine dining setting, like a KO Prime or a Clio or a Pigal or whatever, but make it, you know, strip down the food, have a little bit less of those like froofy garnishes, put it on cheaper plateware so we don't care if it breaks, make it a little bit more high energy and get people that we, that we're friends with to come in and, and eat there. And eventually I was like, man, I want to be surrounded with people that I'm friends with in the restaurant as well. And that's when I started realizing that, you know, a lot of the hardcore kids are not a lot of like just good people that I knew that worked in restaurants, didn't work in restaurants with me because they had the illusion that we were too fancy or too frou-frou when I was at Eastern Standard or, or at Pagal. So we started, you know, stripping it down, like no uniforms for the staff, um, we play whatever we want. You can come in some nights and, you know, hear pretty, pretty awesome old school Wu-Tang stuff. You can come in and hear, um, you know, more modern rock and roll. You know, sometimes you'll come in and we'll play Sabbath all, all night long. It's, you know, just something we wanted to have like a, like a more like toned down thing. And it's just so rewarding. 
Well, I definitely think with success comes the ability to have more of a control of your surroundings and your direction as you achieve. And I think that anytime you incorporate the things that you love and the people that you love into something that's your career and, and your livelihood, the balance becomes like, that's the perfect balance essentially. Yeah. It would really yeah. Now I, I imagine probably at a linear fashion, what point did you end up on chop? How did you end up on chop? They approached me to ask me if I would be on Chopped after I had won uh, a Food and Wine Best New Chef Award. And I was way earlier uh, on. Yeah, yeah. It was like 10, 10 or 11 years ago. And uh, maybe it wasn't first. I can't remember actually the order. It was right around when I was getting press for the first time. The restaurants were pop. Yeah, it was actually, it must have been because Copa was open. And um, I got asked to do it a couple of times and I just kept saying, no, I didn't want to be on TV. I didn't want to be on TV. And one day they asked again and are we had a PR company and Ken, my partner looks at me and goes, dude, you'll win. Just go on it. It'll be fun. It'll be exposure. It, it'll be good for you. And I was like, all right, fine. I will. And I went on not thinking anything like, you know, what of it, we, him and I went out for dinner the night before. And he said, just remember if you, if you get something you don't know what to do with, just cook what you know, and you're a fucking good cook. Just have fun. So we went, I went on to do it. And I was like, you know what? This whole time, I'm just going to have fun with it. I talked shit the entire time. I like tried to throw in like fun things for my like Easter egg comments for my friends to hear and, and laugh at. And I just, I kind of just made it like, uh, like I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want. And if I win, cool. If I don't, fuck it. And I actually won. So it was cool. I always wondered if the chef, world cares or doesn't care chop like what's the what's the actual impact on chop besides you said like it gets you press you're you're kind of right nobody really cares yeah the chef world's like oh yeah he was on chopped it's almost like uh okay like doesn't matter um, yeah, it's a, it's a non it's a non sequitur doesn't count yeah doesn't exactly count. it's a yeah it's exactly right um but i got to go back as a judge and that that was even cooler like to be able to be on the in the judge's seat that that is I, I have a lot of respect for because that's a difficult job too. Now, something I saw on YouTube that you had done was you were um, broaching the subject to someone who had been vegan, vegetarian, becoming an omnivore, and it was really interesting to see like your respect for the food as a general, whether it was meat, whether it was these uh, other dishes, and is that something that you still carry on, where you teach people like, hey, look even if you're vegetarian, vegan, learn this stuff. Like what was the, what was the person or the thing that made you really transition beyond culinary school? Like the first chef to kind of like, look, this is the other side of the fence. You got to learn to meet, you got to learn this. A lot of chefs told me that I needed to start being an omnivore if I wanted to cook as an omnivore, but um, waste was really something that was instilled to me by this guy, Mike Lefebvre working in, uh, in Avon, Connecticut. And he wanted, he was the chef and he's like, I'll let you do a special, but you can only do a special with scraps. If you can come up with a scrap special that you can make for me, that's good. I'll let you come up with a dish. And like those scraps were legitimate scraps, like cutting things down. And I'd have like, you know, 300 grams of chicken skin or 300 grams of beef. And I started doing research into what I could do with that. And I fell in love with charcuterie because that's how you could use a lot of those things to make a pate or a sausage or a terrine um, that was more lovely. And 
I started to see that all the restaurants that I would go to to eat or to stage at had the same cuts of meat, but animals grow more than one cut of meat. So I started thinking like, what's happening to all the other pieces? And like, you know, where's our, where's our food supply? Like, well, if I'm going to eat meat, I want to eat good meat. And um, doing a little bit of research, I started to learn more about whole animals and like cross utilization. And I, I fell in love with the style of cooking of a chef in London. And this was back before, like we were using the internet, man. Like we, we didn't have a website to look at. We didn't even have MySpace yet. You know, I think there was like Prodigy, you know, or America Online and I didn't have a computer. So we weren't, I wasn't able to go look at menus in other places. So I was buying cookbooks and like calling restaurants and pretending that I was, uh, I was like, oh, hi, uh, this is, uh, my name is Jamie Bissonetta. I'm calling from the Hartford Current. Can you fax me your menu to places just so I could get menus of restaurants that I couldn't go to in other states and other cities and, and whatnot. And uh, it was awesome. And I just you know, started to see that people were using whole animals. And this guy, Fergus Anderson in London was using whole animals in a different way. And I just thought it was so badass that, he was able to take something that inherently doesn't look good, smell good, or taste good and transform it into something that people paid a lot of money to for. It was just like, wow, people want to eat that pig's head. Like, what, how is that possible? And I just, I started to think about it. Like if I'm going to be an omnivore, let's use the whole animal. And uh, I started to educate myself on it and then yeah, fell in love with, with cooking oval. Much like in, a, um, I would say, much like in a lot of our episodes, so many people have talked from the exact same time frame, pre-internet. And there's such a change, obviously. Do you feel like there's anything that's been lost in the world of what you work in now because of the internet? Or do you think it would only move forward with the advances with the internet and research and all the different stuff? You know, with any new technology, there's going to be people who use it to better themselves. And there are people who are going to use it as a crutch. And there are people who are going to just blindly use it, not knowing what they're doing. And I think we get a lot of that. I like that I can see what's going on around the world in other restaurants. I really love that I can communicate and keep up with people. Like I fell out of touch with so many people because I didn't have a plan where, you know, we didn't even have text messages. Like, how, you know, when the fuck was I going to call somebody and pay a long distance bill, you know? Um, so I like I like that it, that it's available. I think that it's it's hard when you've got a cook, a young cook who goes and watches like four or five videos on YouTube of somebody doing something, and they think that they now can do it because you know cooking's a trade, man. You've got to have your hands on it. You got to do it over and over again. You don't learn how to make a paella by watching a video and making a paella once. That's how a home cook does it. If you're a chef, you make a paella a thousand times. So you have that in your DNA. So you can make a paella without thinking about it. So when you get a variable that you're not, you know how to, you've gotten every variable, you know how to deal with it. Like as an example, anyway, it's, 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 you know, but it's also great because I can go on and watch somebody cook something in Thailand that I had once and see how they made it. And then I can kind of break it down and pick it apart and see how I would want to recreate it. So I love that part of it. I just hate that there's a, there's a lot of um, YouTube restaurants out there. And I say that uh, about those chefs that didn't pay their dues. You know, they, they worked at a restaurant for one chef and they learned how to plate some pretty food. They worked at another chef and they learned how to use a couple cool techniques, uh, but they 
they didn't work as a sous chef learning how to deal with purveyors or learning what to do when the hoods, you know, deploy the Ansel system or when there's no wood for your pizza oven and you, you're open for service or, you know, the linen company doesn't show up or you need to get the grease recycled, like all of that kind of stuff. Like being a chef isn't just about the cooking. It's not just about the, that, that craftsmanship. It's a, you know, it's about knowing how to lead a team. So sometimes I feel like, um, like technology has hurt that a little bit. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if it hurt it more or helped it more because it's also created a community a lot like how, you know, people keep in touch in the hardcore scene, like, you know, trolling each other for fun as a joke or whatever it is. Like we have that in the restaurant world too. And like to be able to communicate with chefs and friends all over the place is pretty awesome. So and I guess I'm, you know, short answer is I'm psyched about, you know, the technology has come so long, so far along, kind of bummed out because I think it's softened the younger uh, generation of cooks to be, you know, pussies. Sounds like there's the same parallels in so many ways with the hardcore scene. In fact, what you said about the video is something that we talk about with jujitsu. Uh, you see somebody takes a video four or five times. I could do this move. And the older guy who knows, like, it's, it's, it's intrinsic. You brought up paella, and that's something that you're well known for, correct? I made a video that was that's pretty good. Of, that's the video. Like, if you go on YouTube, that's, like, yeah. one of your first things. So I'm like, I don't even know what it was. So it's, like, great that you brought it up. Because I'm like, of course. You read the comments, and you just hear all these people from Spain that are just fucking yelling at me about every part of it. At one point, there was, like, an effigy hate website in uh, Valencia, that had like a, a photo, like a, like a Photoshopped photo of me getting burned in a paella pan or some shit. It's like, they take, people take some, sometimes take shit too seriously. I kind of love it. I just love the idea that some New York, uh, New England, New England hardcore guy is getting yelled at in Spain about a dish. And I, it's, it just shows you the internet value, but also it's awesome that you know so much about this. So, Cause like, I, I, I know nothing about food. I wish I could say otherwise. I know not like every time uh, I know a tra- I had charcuterie. It took me until about five years ago to finally have charcuterie. That's where my no way you had charcuterie when you were young. I guarantee it. You ever had meatballs? I had I had literally uh, only time we had meatballs was in a sandwich in a roll and out of a crock pot. You ever have deli ham? Yeah. Bologna. Yeah, but we only had it in sandwich. I, now I know what it's yeah, charcuterie, so man. It's so fucking yeah, but like. We went to, there's a uh, restaurant in Philly called the Mashalu. Yeah. To me, I thought that was, I thought only, you know, we were so poor. I thought that was like where millionaires went. So I finally took my, you know, uh, Jess there. And I'm like, I made it to the point where I could afford the Mashalu. I know that was the first time I had a charcuterie. But um, I, I, it's interesting to see that you can be a balanced, normal, everyday hardcore person, but still have such a knowledge for all this fine dining and, and all this foreign food. Do you feel like it's the exploring of these different uh, cultures and ethnicities and flavors that has kept you interested all these years? Yeah, totally. Travel, I think, is the best thing a chef can do. Um, you know, just being able to go anywhere in the world and like learn and eat and just and, and like you know throw yourself into the into the culture uh, to learn. Yeah, absolutely, it keeps me motivated. You know, we were lucky enough to expand the Toro brand to Dubai. Um, and while being in Dubai, there's a huge Pakistani uh, population and neighborhood. So I got to learn a lot about Pakistani food over the, the course of the last four years there. Uh, we have a restaurant in Thailand in Bangkok 
Um, and I've always loved Thailand, but going there now for like a weeks at a time and having a restaurant there and working with local ingredients and having our chefs that live there take us around. And it's traveling like that as a chef and going with local chefs around is it's like they're opening it's like being on the guest list of every fucking show and being able to stand on the stage at every show it's like it's just like seeing the matrix it's so it's it's like the top you know one of the things that our a previous guest had brought up was access and exposure and you just alliterate exactly what saying as as someone has more access and exposure you're going to refine your talents and go further you're you have a you have such a, um, a great example of that just present in the fact that you now have restaurants in Thailand, Dubai. How much of you thinks back to the days in Florida where you're like, where you said you're eating from the culinary school, you're barely getting by, and now you're saying, yeah, I got, I got restaurants in Thailand, Dubai, and I travel for food and eating. One of my best friends is this old Miami uh, hardcore kid, skinhead kid named Edwin Marquez. He's a tattooer. He lives in Boston now with his wife. And him and Damien and I, when we were all roommates, we talk about this one day where we were so fucking broke and we were like just destitute. We went and picked through all the couch and found all the money that we could. We went to the car, pulled out all the change. We ended up with like six bucks. We went to Winn-Dixie and we bought lentils and cumin and turmeric, potatoes and a three liter bottle of Pepsi. And we came back and I made enough food to last us four days. And we all thought that that was like the epitome of it. Now I can do the same thing, only I can make it taste a little bit better. And it's so fucking cool, man. I can go to the, where the origin of the dish that I thought I was making in 1997 in Fort Lauderdale. And now I can go to Dubai and go to a Pakistani restaurant and have the actual dish. It's like never, never in a million years would I have thought that. Never, never in a million years. That's something you just said that I wanted to ask you about. You said, um, and I imagine it becomes important, you have to be a good eater to become a good chef or a good cook, correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you don't love food, it's hard to become a, a great chef. There certainly are people who are good chefs and creative that don't, that don't love food, that have a niche, but it's very rare. Yeah, I think it goes hand in hand. It's like, you can't be a great musician if you don't like music. That's exactly what I was going to alliterate. It, it rolls right back into hardcore music. Like if you're stuck on like, hey, hardcore died in 1983, you're not going to be able to get anything out there now that anyone's going to bother listening to. It bothers me when people say that about like a genre, like, oh yeah, hardcore's dead. It's, you know, it's like your your version of it maybe, but you stupid pig-headed fuck. Like why can't, why can't things evolve? Like. Well, I think also, like we talked about earlier, your time when you found hardcore, hardcore was in an evolution stage. Yeah. And I feel like uh, I have a secondary thing that I'm working on this project where I'm talking to people that are legitimately from like the generation that didn't have that record that got them into hardcore. They were there when hardcore was happening. And it's, it, it's, 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 it's interesting to listen to people speak about hardcore and its genesis because they were excited about it. And it was actually the people that came after them that declared it dead. And yeah, it exactly. Only, it's only two or three people that I spoke with that were like, I just felt like all my friends that were onto something different. It took me a while to catch on. Like, oh, fuck, other people are doing things with this. Yeah. And, and it's something we talk about a lot on podcasts is that 
And that's why I like to have different people on the show, specifically someone like you who's been through different things where hardcore lives in the people that are now and celebrated by people like yourself because you're happy just to see hardcore continue. Yeah, man. I love it. And um, I wonder, I wonder how much do you think that even people that come to your restaurant realize, but like, do they really know that, you know, Jamie Biss is like, yeah, I'm a hardcore. Cause I know obviously you get Google and see things. And I know that in different press things, people have asked you about tattoos and punk music, but do people realize from the, like the hardcore scene, like besides your friends, how much you have a love for it, you think? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, I'm still friends with enough band people. Like when they come into town, they'll, they'll go out of the way to come have dinner and hang out. And uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, like a random hardcore kid that I've never met before that comes into the restaurant, he might not know. He might be like, oh yeah, this chef's really good. But then, you know, I wear, I don't wear chef jackets. I cook in, in hardcore t-shirts usually, or like metal t-shirts just because they're more comfortable. So like you walk in and you see somebody wearing, you know, I don't know, a fucking higher force t-shirt if you know who higher force is it's you know you're it's a very specific point of time in yeah. the hardcore world where you'd be like well obviously that's a hardcore kid you know but you know if i'm wearing a you know a fucking sick of it all shirt you never know like back when we were kids you'd walk through the mall you'd see somebody with a dead kennedy shirt on you'd walk up and talk to him because there was the chances of you know the, the meeting somebody that knew the dead kennedys was so rare now hardcore has become a little bit more like known and commercial and some of the bands are, 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 are more known. So like, you know, you see somebody wearing a death threat shirt, you might not walk up to them and be like, Hey, are you a hardcore kid? You look at them and you're like, yeah, they could just be a fringe person. It's not, not like what it used to be. So I don't know. I don't think people would really inherently know. My favorite thing to do is if I see a hardcore kid in the wild, whether it's home Depot or the mall, I'm always older than them. So I'm like, I scream out the name of the band. Just to see what they see, like what the fuck, <laughs> you know? And they turn on, they might go, they might know who I am or not. A lot of yeah. times, if I'm Home Depot, I'm in like a hoodie and work ski cap. But it's always great to see some hardcore kid in the wild. It's great that you brought up mainstream because it seems like, obviously, we talked about it before. But restaurants and cooking, from the time that I was a kid, how many few shows are were to now? There's never been an oversaturation in your point of view, correct? Or is it just? perspective that there's just more shows and more media presenting cooking and show chefs etc i mean whatever media is media if people if people want to watch it let them watch it i don't i think that there's a lot of stupid cooking shows out there these days um but and there were a lot of stupid cooking shows that were coming out when i was a young cook but i'm glad they did because they got us out of the kitchen like it became cool to be a chef like it became okay to come out of the kitchen like I used to have my dad would come visit me at one of the restaurants I wasn't allowed to go out to the table like it was you're a chef you're not allowed in the dining room you know and like to hear that from older chefs that I've looked up to it's it's kind of nice that like our our industry um kind of was validated by the fact that you know people people think it's cool is it cool I don't know is it as easy as some people think it is definitely not but you know i wonder i wonder how much you put into as far as hours as one of the things in construction management is just tracking hours Mm -hmm. and do you feel validated for all that free time do you like now looking back at it because i know we talked i'm i'm a union construction worker i deal with a lot of contractors who are like 
they count hours because it's, that's that's their whole job is based upon man hours. Do you feel as if all the free man hours is validated to see where you're at right now? Yeah, we never counted hours. We you never counted it because you you were there. You were just you were doing it. It was like cooking wasn't a wasn't a financial decision. It wasn't a job. It was what we did. That's so awesome. We, we knew that you know if I had covered up my tattoos and and like learned a little bit more about wine when I was younger, I could have gone to the front of the house and made three times more money than what I made, but that's not what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have burns on my arms and, and scars on my hands. You know, it was like a YDL song or something. What's great about you is that obviously you have a, a worldwide success with being a chef and a restaurateur, but you are also now leading from the front in a different capacity that you worked through this entire COVID. You're one of the voices alongside your partner and others in trying to keep the Massachusetts restaurants open. And you are involved in Massachusetts, Mass, was it Mass Restaurants United? Yeah, yeah. And um, if you follow Jamie on Instagram, which I hope you guys do as we're listening, you'll see him out here feeding the nurses that are on the front lines. Where did that first, I mean, obviously I know the drive in you to do it, but how did it first come together and what were your first thoughts and like lay us on what you're doing to try to keep these restaurants in your area open with all the COVID stuff? Well, when we first were shut down by the by the government um, and told to quarantine, immediately there was a need to feed people, um, and that became uh, aware from uh, off their plate, Natalie and Larissa, and they reached out to my business partner Ken, and Ken said, "Hey, we should do this." And at first, I was like, oh, "I don't understand why," and then we started talking about. It. I was like, "You're right, you know, people keep people need to eat, and the doctors are who are going to be keeping us safe and." Uh, Let's, uh, you know, let's do it. So we got involved with that charity. And what that did also was um, because we were closed, a lot of our staff was on unemployment. But in the restaurant world, not everybody can collect unemployment for various reasons, you know, um, like immigration status, documentation, things like that. So some of our back of the house team and front of the house teams that couldn't collect were like, well, what can we do? How can we make money? And with no restaurants open, they, they were fucked. So by being able to do these charities, we were able to feed um, feed frontline workers who needed to get fed and also pay our teams at the same time um, and keep them afloat, which was, which was great. Um, and at the same time, our friend Tony Ma, uh, who used to work for Ken and is a, is a phenomenal chef in Boston, also a James Beard Award winner, he started talking to some other people about how frustrated he was that there was nobody advocating and lobbying for the things that we needed uh, for our industry as we started seeing it start to dwindle. So he started the MRU, uh, Mass Restaurants United, and they called Ken and they called me and we all started getting on a call two times a week um, on a Zoom and seeing how we could affect change. And, you know, we've been scrappy and trying to figure out uh, you know, we went from a bunch of chefs just talking, trying to see how we could use our social media channels to get more awareness and have people call their their representatives and senators and congresspeople and governors to to try to, you know, affect change in a positive way for our industry. Uh, to now we have a 501c3 status. We've raised some money. Uh, we're probably going to hire someone for this year to, you know, help us as a treasurer and figure out how we can... Um, 
do more. We've assisted with uh, grant work. We've done some town halls where we're educating people on how uh, how to renegotiate their their rent with their landlords during COVID. We're working on another one this week with how to apply for the new PPP that's coming around. Um, and uh, we just want to be a resource for people to be able to co- go to and say, hey, how do we do this? And we want to be able to help them. And we also want to be that voice of the voiceless. You know, like restaurants are kind of like the canary in the coal mine, you know, when, as, for the for the economy. Like as we start to take a shit, then the neighborhoods take a shit because property value goes down. Safety in cities is, you know, <laughs> paramount to have having restaurants open late at night because you've got lights, you've got people. Without that, it becomes, uh, you know, we start to regress and we saw that happening in the beginning part of COVID. So our goal is, you know, to, to help, help each other um, and promote each other and also get, you know, actually we did a good job. We realized that the third party apps that were, you know, DoorDash and Uber Eats, they kind of were taking a lot of money and they're, they're hurting us. Like for every dollar that we sold in takeout, they took 30 cents in an industry where you're only making 10% profit. Meaning for, if we did a, you know, a thousand dollars in sales, you know, 10% of that for profit then you know, having everything else, CapEx, things like that going into it, it's not a lot of money. You know, in our industry does not make a lot of profit. Um, and having somebody taking more profit out of it, who is, it, it just didn't seem right. So we actually, uh, as of this week, we we got a, a, a cap put on the delivery fees to 15% during the pandemic. Since restaurants are not able to have people dining inside, we can now make money with our with our takeout. Otherwise, we we closed one restaurant for the winter. Little Donkeys closed because we couldn't figure out how to make enough money uh, to not lose every month. Um, Toro and Copa, we do so much in takeout that this will be the difference between having a PNL that's going to be red to being black. Um, we also lobbied for a distressed restaurant fund um, and an economic uh, um, development package that can help save restaurants through grants. And uh, I'm fucking proud, man. It's like, you know, we got to yell at politicians and I got to talk to, to politicians on the phone and tell them that they, they were fucking up and, uh, and they listened. It was like, uh, who's going to listen to some fucking straight edge skinhead kid from Canton, Connecticut, telling a, a governor that they need to make a choice, but he did. And uh, it was a very proud moment, very proud moment. No, I, if you're not the first guest we've had on that talked about it. In fact, this week, we are officially a part of the Independent Venues Association, this hardcore and our promotion thing, because Tim Bohr, who was on the show, was explaining the need to lobby. Now, are you the, are would you say that uh, you felt in the beginning that they weren't going to listen? And how do you feel now that you've had it? And do you feel that the reaction uh, is what you were looking for from your governor? Um. I mean, the reaction has been weird because he didn't react. He, but he didn't react um, with action. With action, he. But yeah, I mean, it's complicated. <laughs> it it sounds like everybody in a country like ours sees that we have this giant budget, and they're all trying to say, "Hey, where's our thing?" 
Mm-hmm. Do you feel after your efforts that they're going to do something for you guys? How do you, how do you feel about it? They did. Yeah. They passed something. We're, we're still waiting for the verbiage to see how it's going to work, but they are going, it is going to help save us. And, you know, when I say we were the voice of the voiceless, like the MRU and what we were doing, it wasn't about trying to save my restaurants. Um, it was about trying to save like the little taqueria down the street who doesn't have the same access that we do. You know, to get the PPP loans, we called our bank and we've got a great relationship with our bankers. But then we talked to the sub shop that doesn't have a great relationship with a banker or an ethnic restaurant that doesn't, you know, where English is a second language and the Vietnamese family doesn't have a great relationship with their bank. And now they're going to be able to get more help because the really like the difference between equality and equity has never been so um, obvious to me as it is since COVID in my industry. And we've got we've to do some change, man. Like we've got to fix some shit. As, uh, as Ray said, we've got we've to take a stand. Do you feel, um, especially with everything being exposed, that your industry is going to step up and work towards, I know you mentioned earlier with the way that you work for free. Do you feel like the industry is going to change once this opens back up? Or do you think it'll be some of the players are going to go back to business as usual? I think it'll be a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, obviously people will be complacent and just go back to what they were doing. I'm, I'm hoping that we can make some changes. I think that to have it be a lo- the structure, our industry to be a little bit more equitable in the pay. So we don't have servers that make $120,000 a year and dishwashers that make $30,000 a year, both working the same amount of hours or sometimes the dishwasher's working more. Um, I think, you know, it's going to be hard because... Uh, we're going to have to shake up the system in, in a lot of ways, but I think that growing up in like that DIY world that I did, shaking up the system is what we always did. So fuck it. It's going to be good. No, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed that out because it seems like that's something that instead of eschewing away from it and worrying about max profits, it's, it's, it's great to hear that you're like looking to these aspects to try to help people. And um, I, my question to you now is like looking at the response and the way people reacted, you touched on this and it's important to me, not just how the cities are basically kept alive by restaurants, but people like sharing a meal with your friends to me is the most, I don't eat, if I don't like you or I don't really know you and I don't have a mutual friend that's no, this guy's great. I don't eat with you. Yeah. I don't eat, I don't eat casually. Going out to eat is like the, the, literally the thing I look forward to the most of my friends. And that being stripped away from us kind of takes a value point that we look forward to in life. Like I don't, I pour concrete. I'm tired. I go to jujitsu. I'm tired. I get excited the minute it's like, Oh, we're all going to, who's coming out to eat? Like the the conversation, the food, it, it, to be stripped away from it, it takes a big part of our culture away. And so I love that you said like that about the the restaurants. It's super important. Philadelphia, as you know, is a shithole. And then little by little different people, um, brought in different restaurants. I, I was late to all this stuff. I, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't eat anywhere else. I didn't even eat in an Olive Garden until 2010. Literally, that's where my low level. If it wasn't like hood corner stores, pizza stores, fast food, I didn't eat. But now I'm getting older. We're going to a ton of restaurants. It's the thing we look forward to the most. So I'm glad that there's someone like you fighting to keep it open because like we were all talking about it. We had to go to New Jersey to eat on New Year's Eve because all our restaurants are closed here. Mm-hmm. And it's just fucking crazy to me that it's it's allowed to go on this long. Yeah, I mean, 
there's so many ways to look at the why we are where we are. And like, I've, I've just stopped trying to debate the why. I just want to figure out the how can we fix it. And uh, hopefully, hopefully together all these, all the restaurants can, um, can brunt it. Um, and I think, I think people are starting to really see it. You know, like one of the things that I said um, in an interview with somebody was at the end of this, when the pandemic's over, people are feeling like more normalized. What do you want to do? You want to go out to a restaurant or a bar or go somewhere and gather with people and be social and celebrate, right? Like, what do you want to do on New Year's Eve? Oh, we're going to celebrate the end of the year and the beginning of the new year by going out to dinner or you know something like that. If we don't save restaurants, then all of this, all the restaurants, it's going to be like demolition, man. You know, that scene where they're like, oh, well, Taco Bell won the restaurant wars. So every restaurant is a Taco Bell now. I fucking love Taco Bell. I'd be totally fine if there were more of them. But I don't want a homogenous restaurant world. I want, you know, I want there to be good restaurants and bad restaurants and cheap restaurants and expensive restaurants. And um, with what's happening now, a lot of restaurants, are. it's going to be so hard to recover um, and come back like you know, there's a, a parallel in hardcore punk and what you just said in that the corporate world with AEG and Live Nation have been really involved in buying venues out in all over the country. And they're in the music industry is a homogeny like I've never seen before. And it's even crept into the shores of hardcore. And for me, my biggest concern was I don't want just the big shops open. And then it hit me. Oh wait, fuck! We'll just go back to hall shows. The exactly. Is is there's no fucking hall show for a restaurant? You know, like uh, we were just saying the other day, Villa de Roma is the most little Italian spot you'd never see on the map. If you know, you know. It's a it's a legend in Philadelphia, but we go there. Sixteen of us, everyone's covered in tattoos, and the ladies hugging. Ah, oh, hun, what do you need? What do you need? And it's like that's what we need for our souls. And to see that if that was gone, if Villa was gone, when all is over, I don't want to go to a fucking McDonald's at 16 of my friends. Right. You know, like I don't even want to go to, you know, like it's crazy that Chick-fil-A became the most like a uh, bougie thing out here. You got to see the lines in Chick-fil-A, like, but they're the first restaurant to open up with 10 tents. They've got all this to keep it going because we couldn't eat in places, but it's like, I like Chick-fil-A, but that's not where I want to sit down. Yeah. For an hour and a half with all my friends and laugh and talk and everybody we get food for the table. And so it's it's great to see that you're fighting for that because it's such a huge in part of the experience. And actually what you brought up earlier, way earlier in the conversation, hardcore people, we used to eat after every show. Yeah. In every town. Oh, we're trying to hear. Let's get a bunch of people together. You know, like where do we go? What what diners open? What yeah, it was always like and it was like the show might be four hours, but the hang could be two hours. And then the drive home was two hours. Exactly. Now it's, it's, it's great that you were able to alliterate so many of the parallels between hardcore punk and the entire, you know, restaurant and your specific chef experience, because I think people in hardcore, especially younger people, listen, it's like, I always say, because as a tradesman, there's other ways to get a living and there's honest ways to work. And there's great, you know, there's great livings out there that aren't just, well, I'm going to go to school and I'm a little coding or I'm going to take this college debt on. And it's great that you also say like the college wasn't really the way because I want hardcore people to see like there's other avenues where you can expose yourself to a great living 
an entire trade, as you said, with cooking. And so I, I really appreciate you doing that for us. Is there something that we could do for you guys? Is there people, things that people can click on? Is there things that people who are listening can do to support mass rescue dining? Like I want to be able to make sure that we're driving traffic to help you out. I would say if anybody follows us, you know, me on, on Instagram or whatever, or mass restaurants, if you see something that you, you agree with, we just repost it, man. Like, you know, I started, we started doing like really old school DIY shit with uh, mass restaurants. I started making merch and uh, we're, we're trying to sell, we're having like a merch table outside of the farmer's market. We're, you know, just uh, keep supporting your own local restaurants. You know, if you're going to get takeout, go pick it up. Don't wait for someone to deliver it. If you've got a car, you know, go drive and get it. Don't be so fucking lazy because the person driving is getting below minimum wage and they're getting taken advantage of. And the restaurant's getting ripped off because the middleman who has the app that you use to order your food is making more money than anybody else involved in their publicly traded company now. So, you know, call your restaurants, ask them how you can support the restaurants. It's kind of like, uh, kind of like anything, man. Go in and watch the opening band. Yeah, it's great you said about the apps. I've never used Uber Eats. I've never used Grubhub. In fact, until this year, I never rode in a, a Uber in America. And then my car blew up and I had to. And I, I just, I don't have, I, like, I still go to, I'll call ahead. I get the pizza, the pizza spots is, you know, where we eat from a lot. You know, they got good Italian food too. And so, yeah, you go in there, you pick up and you support. I want to ask you a couple of short ones and we'll get you out of here. Cause I'll be talking for a while. What is your biggest regret that you can think of besides the yelling early on in your career? Like if you could change something from earlier in your career. Uh, I wish I had slowed down a little bit and been a little bit more calculated. I find that I was reacting, not responding a lot when I was younger. Um, anger management definitely was a big part of it. Um, but I, I prioritized um, restaurants and work over my own health, over my relationships and over my family. Um, I wished I hadn't. What do you think the worst dish you've ever eaten was? The worst dish I've ever eaten was probably something that I cooked uh, trying to trying to make something. Uh, oh, it was a halibut dish. Actually, the halibut dish with um, yellow-eyed peas and escarole that I put on the menu at Eastern Standard. And uh, it tasted like it fucking was cooked in the dish machine. It was so bad. So bad. How did you realize it was bad? I was eating it and I was like, man, how do I make this better? And uh, I just couldn't I couldn't figure it out. I just had to take it off the menu. It's really fucking bad. Because you're a chef, this is probably going to be easy. But I always thinking about with food and a question to ask you. If you were for some unfortunate reason on death row, what's your last meal? If my last meal could be like a feast, it would be like a multi-course, epically long feast with all the foods I love going from like puffy chicken fingers from an Americanized Chinese restaurant to caviar, to pizza, to raw oysters, to blah, blah, blah. If it's just going to be one dish, meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Wow. Actually, that's one of my favorite things to eat. Meatloaf oh, and mashed bro. Dude, mash, mashed potatoes. You ever yeah. want someone just to cut a bunch of potatoes up? I can cut, I can skin and cut potatoes fast. It's what we ate a lot. Yeah. Now, um, one last thing. As as someone who's loved hardcore throughout this whole thing, I find that I, I say this often on Cognitive Different Guests, and you I did a great job of it. Like 
there's going to be times when you're working for yourself that you're not at every show, but you don't lose touch with hardcore. And you're a great beacon to explain that. Like uh, my friend Juice, who was on the show, he designed a t-shirt for you that was GB inspired. No matter what we do in our careers, we can still stay in touch with hardcore by being a family guy and making work uh, our priority. Did you ever feel at any single time like you couldn't come back or you always knew you could come back? I never, I mean, I knew I left, but I never felt like I was gone, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I still, you know, yeah, just. That's good. That's why I wanted people to hear more. Like, honestly, I know it's short, but like, there's so many people that say to me, like, I love hearing that, you know, you can still be involved. It's like, yeah, look at the fucking internet. Look at Hey Five Six. look at all the things. Yeah. Still interact with hardcore and stay in touch. Yeah. I mean, what, and what is interacting in hardcore? Like hardcore needs support so if you want to interact then don't fucking stream music buy it from the band buy a t-shirt you know buy a record you know support support the industry that you know that you want to be a part of you you being into hardcore the one thing that people i think real don't realize is that you can't be passive you, you can but you shouldn't be like it's hard to be a passive participant in in that kind of music scene it's meant it's meant in my mind to be interactive like you should be you should be buying a shirt and seeing like seeing the bands that you want to see and being there and talking to people and like it it can't just be you know listen to the music at home watch videos go to one show at a fucking house of blues when you want to see whatever band it is it's like you've got to you've got to put the effort in otherwise it's not going to be rewarding and uh you know, if you don't put the effort in for a long time and you want to go back, don't feel bad about it. Just put the effort in. No, I agree. I agree 1000 with that. Do you, is there, is there a show that has been out recently that you regret not going to because of work? Is there something that's come through like, fuck, I wish I could have made it big, small in general. Yeah. There's been a lot Oh man, this year is so fucked up my memory as I can't remember. No, you because you almost feel like you lost a year. So you're like, well, I don't even fucking remember last year. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get out, do you, all right, I'll let us rephrase it. Do you get out to shows when you can? Or I, I do. I mean, so I'm very lucky where Little Donkey is, where I spend a lot of my time, like I said, is across the street from um from the Middle East. And then right behind us is a little hall that everybody calls Hardcore Stadium. Yeah. Um, so I can walk, I like, I can, I actually tell friends when bands are coming in town, Hey, you guys can park in the little donkey parking lot. Cause it's directly across the street. Like I can look and see people outside the show hanging out from where I'm standing in the kitchen, a little donkey out the back door. So that is afforded me sometimes where I've walked over in my chef whites just to catch a band that I wanted to see. Um, it sucks that I can't hang out the whole time. I missed Negative Approach, a band I've never seen, and they were played. They played there like uh, maybe a year and a half ago, and I missed Murphy's Law when they played there. I was pretty fucking bummed about that. I love Murphy's Law Live. What a fucking fun band! Um, yeah, I I still book Negative Approach when they come through. That's awesome. I it's they're one of these bands where they haven't lost the energy, and in fact, they're just the, like the penultimate true hardcore dudes, like. They'll play this is hardcore in front of like 2,500 people and then go play the after show three hours later to 200 in a small yeah, place. That's so and, fucking awesome. And it's like, yeah, I mean, these dudes are the originators and in Detroit and they just carry the flag still. Like, 
no factor. I'll go fucking do two shows in a day. I yeah. love it, man. I wish that his other band, Laughing Hyenas, still played. I thought they were fantastic. I feel, you know, every once in a while when he and I are talking about shit, he'll be like, you ever want me to, and he'll start bringing up other stuff that he's done, like, you know, Easy Action come through or Laughing Hyenas. And it's like, it's great that he has such different uh, projects besides just negative approach. Cause yeah. there's a lot of the guys from his era that have the one, they got the one thing. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. Got the one thing. And uh, uh, when they came, they came back in like the, the mid two thousands, it was like something special. Like we saw him at the church. It was like, Holy fuck. This is what the band was like. Cause yeah. you know, obviously too young to see them at their, in their original state. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Dude, just thank you for being on the show, man. And thank you for being honest. And a lot of times I think when people achieve what you've done, it's easy for you. You could have easily sat in like an ivory castle and just been friends with all the main chefs and been on TV. But I love that you're still connected to the culture. And I hope that in some way people realize that you don't have to lose connection with the culture and be an amazing success and still, you know, keep who you are in check. And I, I think that you told a great story about how you did that. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. You know, take what you do seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. Is there a way that people can reach out to you? Just want to check out Instagram. Uh, do you have a .com? Like, what can we do to support you on the internet? Yeah, Instagram's great. Um, that's what I look at most of all. And my my Instagram and my email are the same. Just jamiebiss at gmail.com if anybody wants to email me about anything. If you email me for a reservation and I don't know you, fuck you. But that's about it. <laughs> Now, if when uh, Jimmy gets shows back at Hardcore Stadium, I will try to make an effort to come out just to harass you outside the little donkey. And I really hope that things work out for you. And just thank you for being a part of the show. And thank you for holding the flag in your own way in the the dirty kitchens of the world and teaching hardcore kids how to cut better vegetables and do better shit. Because I think a lot of people now are starting to see that this evolution of eating is a good way to also make a living. I have a lot of friends who have gotten into kitchens in the last 10 years. And it's a shock because it was something you almost only knew a handful of people. And now it's like, there's so many people in hardcore that are involved in it. It's great to have you on the show. Oh yeah. It's yeah. Uh, and shout out to all the, uh, all the hardcore kids that are in the restaurant industry too. Love it. Nah, man. Thank you so much. I thank you. Bro. No, thank you, dude. I hope you enjoyed his story as much as I did talking him through his entire progression from just being like a crazy teenager in New England who was loving hardcore and didn't want nothing to do with school to all the unbelievable successes that he achieved. And if you were listening throughout the entire story, he constantly set goals and achieved them. First saying that he wanted to just work in a kitchen that had a James Beard award-winning chef, and he would later be awarded that same award. And him saying he just wanted to work in a restaurant with Ken Oranger, who would one day go ahead to be his business partner in all these amazing restaurants that he's now involved in. It's absolutely important that we set our goals and set them high, and we drive through them no matter what the cost is. And as he said, you know, it was countless hours, tirelessly pushing, refining his craft. And yeah, he missed out on some shows, and, you know, it was hard for him at times because he was detached from the hardcore scene. But as he said also, you know, the hard work paid off, and every time he popped back in, people were very happy to see him. And there's plenty of people out here who have fallen short on goals because they didn't want to lose their ties to hardcore. But the lesson learned is that Jamie's still a hardcore kid, the same way he was in the beginning, 
only ha has an entire career of success that was just paid off in all the tireless work and hours. Going forward on our next podcast, we're going to have Alex March, who is someone from the New Jersey hardcore scene that was quite young, found hardcore, was even around when I was singing in Shattered Realm in the early 2000s. She has an incredible story about finding her voice and helping people who have been in abusive relationships and other stuff. It's one of these things where at different times in the last couple of years, there's been conversations in the internet and I don't have the right voice or education or background to talk about them. And I wanted to give a platform to someone that I know and someone that I've known for quite a few years who has been doing some amazing work and helping people. And we got her on the show and her story is awesome, and I hope that you guys enjoy it. Be sure to check out all of our episodes and the information at tihcpodcast.com. You can also subscribe, share, and if you see us on Fridays posting the posts about the upcoming episode, please reshare. Let your friends know you like this. I'll keep this short because this was another long one. Thank you. See you next week.